future your host i invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake quake, quake. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we have a, another tremendous guest this week. I know I sound like a broken record. I say that frequently. Well, I know that you really like this guest. Um, yes. You, this is one of your, I would venture to say that this may be one of your personal favorite guests. Well, Tom Horn, Pastor Dr. Tra- Tom Horn, um, is doing some of the most important work, I think, within our country today and within Christendom. So Mm -hmm. put it that way. Uh, We're going to talk about the genetic revolution and its prophetic implications in light of God's word. And it's packed full of information, so we can't stay here long. So we're going to have to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to learn frightening stuff this week. So I just suggest we get straight ahead and go into it. Any last word? Uh, I am looking forward to hearing this one. Okay. Be sure to catch it all week. Tom Horn, here we go with the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show tonight. Uh, Tom and I have with us uh, one of our favorite guests, uh, Pastor Tom Horn, who is the uh, CEO and founder of Anomalous Publishing, as well as Raiders News Network, uh, one of the top news sources on the Internet, uh, who I can also say has been an enthusiastic supporter of ours. And uh, uh, today we're going to talk about the future of genetic manipulation and its health, social, political, and spiritual impact on the human species. And, uh, Pastor Tom, I just want to thank you for uh, being on our show with us. Well, it's a great privilege, as you know, to be always anytime on the show with Dr. Future. <laughs> <Tom Bionic. laughs> oh, well, so kind. Yeah. So kind. Thank I, you. I just want to express publicly uh, uh, how much I appreciate your mentorship and support of what we're doing here in our little corner. Uh, it's a real privilege to, to be associated with someone as influential as you are and as contending for the faith and the kingdom in so many areas. I should also say you're also Dr. Tom Horn and uh, well-known in many areas. And, in fact, we have so many new listeners now with our new formatted Future Quake show. I was just wondering if you could take a few minutes uh, to let our new listeners know a little bit about your background. I know you're, you're sort of a... Uh, uh, I, I pulp, pulp hero with a lot of us here in, in some of our circles, but uh, for all of our new listeners, tell them a little bit about, about your background and how it led to your interest in this general topic that we're going to discuss today. Well, I mean, I don't even know how to follow up with an introduction like that. I'm almost <laughs> too far out of place trying to pat myself. 
awful in the back. And, you know, and, and it's right back at you because the truth is, and I've said this on your show in years past, that, um, you know, it's, it's one of the most important programs out there, and that's the reason why you continue to get the A-list names that are willing to come on and talk with you because you talk about important subject matter. Tom, if I can, if, if I can interrupt you just once here, I just want to tell our listeners that uh, Dr. Horn uh, is frequently asked to be on a lot of big nationally syndicated radio shows. He's uh, frequent and, and very popular guest on Coast to Coast, uh, very popular shows like Prophecy in the News and other places, and he chooses to uh, be with us because he believes in what we're doing. I'd also like to say that you've got a horrible head code right now and you're feeling horrible. <laughs> and I know you'd rather be in bed right now recuperating because of your extremely busy schedule. But uh, you, you care enough about our listeners as well as us that you've taken time and, and, and trying to talk through the congestion and everything to be with us. So yeah. well, I thank you for that. ask everybody to, to bear with you. Uh, they have to listen to, uh, to me all the time, and they're able to do that. So ho- hopefully content is more important than uh, uh, style points. But I just want to let everybody know that and just, just recognize you're, you're an Iron Man today to be with us today. Oh, well, I appreciate that so much. Well, you know, to answer your question, as far as who I am and what I do, my wife and I, you know, for almost 25 years, we were pastors in one of the largest evangelical uh, institutions in the world. Um, And uh, then about 10 years ago, we took kind of a semi-retirement, or at least I thought it was going to be a semi-retirement. I think we're busier now than we ever have been before. As you mentioned, coming onto the show, we also own Anomalous Publishing House, which is a Christian publishing house. Most of our Christian books are published under the label Highway. Um, and, uh, and but you know, as far as as far as my wife and I, I have a terrific wife. I've been married to her for so long I can't remember anymore. Thirty some years. And uh, you know, we've got wonderful kids. We've got great grandkids. We've been very blessed in all of those ways. Uh, her and I, you know, um, now nowadays, as far as our own hobbies and interests, we enjoy uh, newscasting and uh, we'll be back on the radio again full-time again this year following the ICRS show uh, the the International Christian Retailer Show in Orlando that's coming up uh, in July in uh, about four weeks and but uh, you know if, if a person wants to know what we're interested in they look at some of the books we've written um, over the last couple of years two of which have become bestsellers the Aramon Gate was a novel which now has a movie deal on it and I just heard from the uh, film company, and I'm not allowed yet to say who the film company is, but they have a $45 million budget. And they've Great. Already got the scre- yeah, nice. they've already got the screenwriters writing the, the screenplay, so that's we're excited about that. And then my new book is my best-selling book ever, Nephilim Stargates. But, but all of those illustrate that among our interests, we like talking about um, ancient history. Of course, anything that has to do with the church and prophecy and ethics uh, that sort of thing. But lately, it's these parts of history that tell the story about the so-called gods, you know, um, of mythology, or fallen angels, that came down and they used uh, women's DNA and animal DNA, and they created this unusual offspring that's talked about in the, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis 6, where, the, where it created the giants or the mighty men of old. Uh, brother, I, brother Tom, before we get into that, I, I just want to make sure we, we get into the background of that in just a moment. But uh, w- one thing I was remiss to say to our listeners is that uh, you, you were so kind to originally be planned as our original guest. And uh, we had some uh, audio problems and some other things in our uh, even more primitive uh, days in getting our newly formatted show off the ground. So I want to thank you again for coming back here and giving us another kick at the can with you. 
appreciate that very much. That just shows how loyal you are to our cause, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. just really appreciate it. But I want to just summarize some of your background before we move on to this topic, because I, I'd like to understand where we are right now and then go back into the past, um, and uh, <clears throat> to, to, to really understand this uh, more fully where, where we're at. Um, can you? Uh, well, let, let me let me just say that uh, if I understood you correctly in your background, you come with very strong evangelical credentials. Uh, you come with uh, with good background, good references as far as your uh, uh, your, your particular background in, in evangelical circles and serving as a minister of the Lord in, in churches and elsewhere, along with a number of very popular Christian ministries. But circumstances led to you to get involved in some very, very unique things that forever changed the style of your ministry some lengthy period ago. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, uh, well, we were pastors for a long time, and, and, and God had blessed us. Our church on the, on the uh, West Coast was the church that Trinity Broadcasting Network used for their West Coast uh, broadcast. And we've still got lots of pictures of us on wow. stage in our church with all these you know, everybody who was anybody back then, Dwight Thompson and just everybody. Um, Nancy Harmon was part of our church. She, she recorded her um, love special from inside of our church. So the, the Lord had really blessed us in some of those ways. But, um, um, you know, for whatever reason, God, if you're sincere, I think, and, and many people are, and when you are, God has a way of taking you into whatever unique ministry he wants you involved in. And for whatever reason, we had people who started coming to us who were seeking deliverance. And at first, we were we were you know sending these people to special groups that we knew. Um, and to make a long story short, over a period of time, I became involved in the same group, and eventually, I became the head of that group. It was a, a group of exorcists made up of about 50 people, uh, and we only took cases that were uh, assigned to us after these people had gone through a fairly rigorous uh, elimination process. What we did not want were people who had psychological problems, that sort of thing. And um, uh, But I will say that in all of those deliverance situations that I was involved in, I, I only ever saw one case uh, where, to this day, the phenomenon that was involved in that exorcism was literally like something out of a movie. I'd never seen anything like it before. I've never seen anything like it since. But that one case did illustrate to me several things. One, that there that there really are malevolent forces, which are phenomenally strong, uh, but that these forces are subject to one name given under heaven, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. And when we, and when, that when we used that authority, these powers were made subject to him. And uh, so this was a great verification in my life. And I went on, I wrote the book, Spiritual Warfare, and in that book I actually cited that story. That book's out of print now, but it was a bestseller at Barnes & Noble, I think, for more than three years. But it was just from there we went on to talking about related uh, subject matter, started doing research into the ancient past, uh, trying to see things that had happened in the ancient past that might also smack of being prophetically relevant today. And just during that whole course of time, different, you know, doors opened to us. We started the Raiders News Network, which has become large. I used to have my own radio and television show, but that was a long time ago, and I, I quit doing that. And now I'm kind of technically inept. I mean, I don't even know what you have to do to make <laughs> uh, these programs uh-huh. work. Before. Well, that, that makes, I do that, a lot that of makes, radio, but... Yeah, that makes three of us now. <laughs> <laughs> and we produce our own show, yeah, so that's yeah, almost a problem. It's something else. <laughs> well, you know more about it than I do, but I'm going to have to learn, I guess. Well, I tell you, it's wonderful to share some of your background because uh, 
And, and we're going to get into that in the course of the interview here because some of your very unique experiences help shed light to you on what's going on. Uh, but, but you have all sorts of ministries. You are an encourager to a number of people. Uh, for example, we, um, we had the Gilberts on, Derek and Sharon on uh, recently. We've had Dave, wonderful. Dave Lowe on recently. And one thing we all agree is that uh, if we're all spokes and some kind of strange wheel, then you must be the hub because <laughs> you are the crossroads. A lot of us have a connection that uh, you have uh, mentored many of us in your own way. You provided encouragement. Uh, well, you need to stop. Sometimes, sometimes one of the few, some of the few senior people of good report that uh, uh, can make sure that the right messages get out. And I know that's partly why you started your book publishing uh, group. I, I was going to use the word empire, and I know you always blush, but it's an empire in building where you're providing an opportunity for messages that, similar to what we try to provide in FutureQuake to our audience, to get out to a wider audience via via publishing as well as your own website there. But uh, our topic tonight uh, is regarding uh, what we're reading about in the newspaper every day. And if those of you who are uh, sharp enough to be regular readers of Raiders News Update on a regular basis, you're much more aware of this. Uh, but it's something, again, that's in, in every newspaper, and that are developments happening every day regarding, for lack of a better term, it relates to the genetic revolution. What is going on based upon the fund fundamental building blocks genetically uh, of the human body and of, of all the species and what's being created now, which is basically a brave new world. So uh, you're much more of an expert in that uh, than we are. So could you give our listeners sort of a very brief overview and understanding of what this genetic revolution encompasses now and why they should care to look into it further? And then after that, we'll get a little bit into the background of uh, uh, why should we care particularly as Christians for that. But, but just give us a basic understanding of what the scope of it is. Well, to, you know, to keep it as concise as I can, there's just been an, Amer an amazingly short period of time where uh, in science and in technology we have moved from first discovering the double helix coil, the human coil, to, to nearly decoding now uh, the, the literal instruction set, if you will, uh, for life itself. And in fact, we're moving beyond that even now to synthetic biology, where we're learning to perhaps create whole new forms of life. The top story at Raiders News Network today is about that. Time Magazine, um, National Geographic, everybody is doing press on this right now, ABC, NBC, everybody, uh, where they're looking at this whole genetics revolution, to use your term, and they're talking about how in so many unprecedented ways we are right now standing literally um, – on the edge, and to some people this might be a cliff's edge, we're standing literally on an edge of making fundamental changes to life, to biology, to living organisms that will literally change everything that we know about the world and about our lives. Uh, cloning. Uh, Dolly was the first one. Look how, look in just such a short period of time how we went from Dolly to where now we're creating human-animal clones in laboratories around the world. Most of the time, the, the laboratories people are hearing about are the ones that are seeking government um, grants and money right. from the government, and so it goes through a process. But, but private laboratories all around the world are already doing this and, and, and are advancing uh, quite succinctly, and they're receiving uh, private funding for doing so. They're already doing this in the United States. They're doing it in California and a lot of other states where they're actually creating these, these 
strange forms of life at the embryonic level that are part human and part something else. And when I say something else, I mean part cow, part fish, part monkey, part, uh, you know, you can almost add ad nauseum the, the kinds of embryonic uh, creations that we're making now. Of course, there's, you know, among con conspiratologists, they also believe that there are, you know, laboratories. In fact, we wrote about that in the Armand Gate, laboratories around the world that are creating some of these things to full maturity. But, but, but no matter what, we know that at least um, based on press from good and reliable press sources that this is happening at the embryonic level. So uh, we also, in this um, genetics revolution, are talking about the reconstruction of plant life and also animal life and even animal applications. Uh, genetically altered seeds, uh, genetically altered uh, animals uh, that we're using for either militaristic purposes. That you know, we now have goats that create spider silk in their milk, so that the military can harvest that for creating these new bulletproof vests that are as light as a T-shirt, but they'll stop a bullet because they're incredibly strong. That sort of thing. Wow. We also we also see some of the human applications that are happening in the genetic revolution, where you have designer babies right now already being created uh, in um, in the laboratories out of the United Kingdom, uh, where you can you can use sex selection, eye color, that sort of thing. Um, we also see that there's a business application to the genetics revolution, and big business, uh, huge corporations, are investing billions of dollars uh, into the future of genetic modification and 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 biotechnology because everything from what we might talk about later, everything from transhumanist applications to what, what what's really more on the forefront right now, and that is the patenting of certain genetic application for providing medicines that might uh, cure people who have a certain kind of genome, or I mean, a certain type of gene type, or that have, let's say, diabetes or whatever. And these huge corporations know that they'll be able to create these these medical applications that may provide cures for people who have a certain gene type. Uh, but if they own the if they own the the um, the patent on that gene type, which they're doing right now, the people who want the cure are going to have to pay the dollar. So it's it, we're we're talking about really the next uh, the next revolution, if you. But but now in gen genetics revolution, and this is the issue I think that's really more important to me, and it's what I talk about more, more than anything else, are the ethics involved in the genetics revolution. I mean, in other words, if people of faith or even people of concern, what do they have to say and what are their concerns about this newfound knowledge? In other words, how is it going to impact us on a practical day-to-day -day level? How is it going to impact our children? How is it going to impact the future? How will it impact the environment, the balance of nature? How will it infect our health and resources? And, that's, and I think that's the subject matter where people of faith can get involved in this debate uh, because the ethics of biotechnology and the genetics revolution is going to, if not already has started, is going to touch the lives of every human on planet Earth. So it's time for the church to be engaged in this debate in very profound ways. And Tom, uh, speaking of this ethics debate, there's been a few statements made from within a religious community that just totally shocked me. Uh, one of them was from the Catholic Church in Britain, and you correct me if I'm wrong because you're, you're more up-to-date than I, but I, I think they actually said that if any women who they've discussed actually uh, carrying 
in in their own womb a chimera, uh, which we'll we'll talk about later, are an animal-human hybrid, animal-human genetic hybrid. That if they were actually um, you know put in their womb, one of these uh, entities, that they said that they should carry them to term and that they should not be destroyed, but they should go on and be birthed. And, and all sorts of other stranger things like this. If, if I got my story straight, and there's no, that's exactly right. The, there were two, and this was during the whole discussion in the UK, maybe oh, 45 days ago, two months ago now, uh, when when this debate was heating up. You had Catholic bishops from England and Wales, who um, and 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 their uh, their submission was actually in writing. Um, and what they said was that human-animal embryos that are conceived in the laboratory in this way, this was during the debate phase, these so-called chimeras, that they, first of all, they ought to be regarded as human. Because that if they even had even a preponderance of human genes, then they had to be assumed to be embryonic human beings, at least in part. That was one of the points they were making. And they said... Uh, that if mothers participated in the providing of ovum or whatever for the creation of these exotic creatures, then and and if they decided they wanted to bring these babies to term and have them as children, they ought to have the right to do that to give birth to them. This th- these were the Catholic bishops of England and Wales, and it was an, and anybody can go look this up at Google or Yahoo and read their submission to the um, parliamentary joint committee that was scrutinizing that draft legislation. And they said that these genetic mothers of these chimeras ought to be able to raise these children if they wanted to. Now, there were other following that, uh, in fact, following after I went on radio and brought it out and had people go and read it, then there were some Catholics uh, that came along and said they did not agree with these bishops of England and Wales. But it illustrates what kind of tortured ethical debate are being raised um, by these issues, and you and you really do have to understand that that these that these bishops uh, who were advocating for this th- these are not uh, these are not people who are you know on the fringe. These are not people who are without reason capacities. They were they were actually making a reasonable statement that if these things are part human, you can't just simply kill them at 14 days. I mean, ethically, the church has to have a position. The human life has a value, but 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 the big problem is we don't know what these things are. That yeah, they may be part human, but but they're not entirely human. Therefore, it staggers the mind uh, what kind of proposition is being made here. Right. And of the, course, the religious community has to wonder: Do they have a soul, and are they uh, subject to salvation or even the fall? And then the uh, secular community has to worry about: Do they have human rights? And what kind of laws and jurisdiction do they fall under? That's exactly right. And and, and, and what's interesting is different religions handle it differently. I mean, I've read some of the mm-hmm. stuff that's written by some of the, the priests um, uh, out of Israel, and some of their scholars are, are saying that they're not sure that these human-animal chimeras would have a soul. And one of their one of their priests actually said, therefore, would it be okay to sacrifice one of them as a sac- as a blood sacrifice? I mean, it was just so. So here you go. I mean, there's really no way to answer the dilemma that's being presented by what we're doing now in science, but we're doing it anyway. And this is why I was interested in going back into the past and 
you know, I started out trying to find what some of the models might be, um, it, it, just the scientific models, what might be the benefits, what mm-hmm. might be uh, the dangers, the risks associated with the crossing over of the species barriers, not just humans and not just animals, even plant life. Uh, because, you know, having been a pastor for so many years, I actually earned, by the way, an honorary doctorate for my studies in this area. You know, my, my interest in this was if, if it is God who put in place barriers between the species so that a dog cannot normally mate with a pig and, pr- and produce a dog pig or a pig dog or whatever, um, why would God have put these barriers in place so that humans can't breed with animals and that sort of thing? Uh, what what does God know that we don't know? So I, I started out, you know, with with that kind of a passion to understand this, but I also wanted to um, advocate just for the scientific reasoning behind all of it. You know, what were the benefits? What might be the negatives? And the interesting thing was I wasn't finding anything hmm. uh, in science models. And, and when I say I wasn't finding anything in science models, this was maybe fifteen or. 16, 17 years ago when most people didn't even understand the term transgenics or biotechnology or transhumanism. Um, And I wasn't finding anything in the science community, but I kept finding this old story where this had happened once before. And this was what Mm. astonished me, that around the world there was a universal record, and it was the oldest record in human history. It, it, it's right in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 6, and it's in the beginning of the Sumerian legends, the Egyptian legends, the Greek legends, the Chinese legends. Over and over, I found around the world, one of the very first stories ever told was a story about how these gods came down, and they mingled human and animal DNA for the purposes of creating a body into which they could extend themselves and this led to chaos, and, and in the Bible, of course, ultimately it led to the fiat of the Great Flood. But, the, but this universal story stood out to me, that there was this warning. And, you know, the old saying that people who can't learn from the past are danged, that's not the word, but danged <laughs> to repeat it. Um, it you know, I, I started wondering, you know, I think we have the, much of this mythos where Zeus um, comes down. And he mates with a human female, and out of that is born Hercules. But this, this, but this story was told even in the sacred books, even books associated with the Bible, it was told over and over again uh, how these things came down. And, and so I, you know, I started seeing a mirror of what had happened in ancient time with what we're doing today—the blending of humans and animals. And scientists, by the way, now. Uh, even this week, I read some of the people who were involved in this debate in Australia. Uh, we're saying that ultimately, behind closed doors, ultimately scientists are saying that these beings won't be destroyed at 14 days. Ultimately, some of them are going to be raised full maturity. And this is this is the gateway now that we're opening. Well, it's just like with uh, weapon systems. You know, mankind has never invented a weapon they didn't eventually use. And the same thing is true in every other area of science, too. Any kind of uh, discovery in biology or other kind of fields is eventually going to be taken to its full measure because that's just the innate curiosity, whatever it is innate in mankind, desire to be God, whatever. We've had our ethicists warn about it. But right now they finally have the tools in their pocket. It reminds me of the Tower of Babel, you know, when God said, 
if, if we don't intervene, there's nothing that man can't right. do. And now he really has the tools today to go to the fundamental nature of, of creation and to take the fundamental building blocks. Now, he can't speak nothing that's in existence like God, but he can take the fundamental building blocks here and, and virtually create whatever he pleases. No, you're, you are exactly right. And so think about, well, first think of the ancient record, and then secondly think of the modern record. The ancient record, these beings, for whatever reason, needed to blend species. And if we have time tonight, we can talk about why I think they needed to do that. But they needed to blend animals and humans. And they made a body. And this is in the, this is in the, not just the book of Genesis. Uh, it's also in the New Testament, the book, the book of Jude, the, the epistles of Peter, where their reasons for doing this was they wanted to leave their estate. They wanted to leave their plane of existence. They wanted to come down into our reality. And for whatever reason, that required them to create a body. Now, they could have came down in the days of, of Jared uh, on the mountain of Horeb, according to the story. They could have came down any time they wanted to and possessed people. Uh, but they didn't want to possess people. They didn't want to just house themselves in somebody else's body. They wanted to be incarnated. They wanted to enter our reality. And, and, and the way they did that was by creating a body through which they could extend themselves and, and all these records, I mean, if you look at the, the ancient book of Jasher, which is a book that's uh, it's referred to in the Bible, in the book of Joshua 10.13, it's talked about in Second Samuel 1.18. And, and, it, and it's so important, that this text, because it says, it says, after the fallen angels went into the daughters of men, then the sons of men taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other in order to provoke the Lord. Now, this so, book of Jasher you mentioned, that's a book that's actually cited in our regular canon of the Bible itself, correct? It is. It's referred to in the book of, in the, uh, in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, the 10th chapter, verse 13. It's also referred to in 2 Samuel 1.18. It also was part of the canon that Jesus and his disciples used. This was a book hmm. that was not excluded from the canon of Scripture until many years later, uh, during, I think, the Second Council of Trent, where they were trying to determine uh, which books they could, with some level of um, certainty, determine who the authors of the books were. And where they couldn't determine the authors of the book, uh, then they excluded them from the canon. But for many years, they continued to publish these apocryphal or pseudepigrapha books as uh, secondary, you know, like Maccabees and 3rd and 4th Daniel mm -hmm. and other books, they, they continued to include those uh, in versions of the book of the Bible, but it was only right. uh, many, many years later where they just started publishing the canon that we use now. Well, but, I, but the Bible, I, did, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, Tom, but what I might clear to my listeners as you proceed further with your hypothesis here is that what you're going to lay out here is not dependent upon these other books to justify it. You can read it directly out of the words of... Uh, Genesis chapter 6, and if you're very, very careful in taking your, your Hebrew translation, if, uh, if, if people have questions here, you can go to blueletterbible.org online or go some, to your other references and look up the Hebrew words and look up what you're sharing. But the core of this is directly out of Scripture, what you're sharing. And actually, rather than confusing Scripture, it clarifies a lot of Scripture. We talked a little bit about this with the Gilberts when they were on. Uh, but, but what you're going to share, just taking our regular canon we have, it's clearly denoted in there. And these other references you're citing are ones that are, are referenced in the Bible or were used by people at the time of the writing of the Bible. And all they do is really add further elaboration and further testimony that collaborates 
with other external records of other cultures that puts together a common story. Well, all these do are, are it, it, they support what we already know from the Bible. I hold that the Bible, the one that you and me would hold in our hands today, and in fact, I'll tell you how old-fashioned I am. I still just use the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, that's how old-fashioned I am. Mm-hmm. These are only books that only support what we get out of the inspired scripture. I don't hold them up to be uh, equivalent to the existing canon of the Bible. I don't hold them up as being uh, superior or even on the same level uh, as the canon of scripture. So that if I read anything in a pseudepigrapha or an apocryphal book to contradict it, uh, what I what I hold in my old-fashioned King James Bible, it's almost about to fall apart. I've turned the pages mm-hmm. on it so many times. Mm. Then I would reject that outright. So people need to know that about me. I'm a very conservative uh, individual. So these are just books. There are a couple of criterion, by the way, that I use. While there are other books that also support the Scripture, I only use the ones that are quoted in the Scripture by the prophets of the Bible. So that's why I use Jasher. That's also why I use the, the first book of Enoch. The, the first book of Enoch is quoted in uh, both by Peter and um, uh, Jude. Jude in the New Testament, and they make direct quotes, line-by-line quotes. And that's because, of course, this was part of their Bible. In fact, when the, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and we got the Qumran text, we found that these were part of the first church Bible. Uh, mm. But So I don't... You know, I don't want to go into a debate about why later on certain authorities within the church determined to exclude certain books of the Bible. It doesn't, doesn't change anything. We don't need anything more than the Bible we have now. Well, I just want to so, clarify for our listeners that uh, before they get turned off prematurely, was that uh, this is clearly out of our regular Word of God, as we've said clearly, and you use these additional books as cited in the Bible just to maybe give uh, some further clarification and what you find regardless is a common uh, narrative uh, within the Bible, within the supporting text, and even in other cultural texts around the world uh, that can be harmonized with the narrative in the Bible. That's exactly what I do. I use the, the, the Bible is the only authority. It's the only inspired, infallible Word of God. Uh, if these other books can verify what, that, what the infallible uh, uh, scriptures say, then they have value. And for me, like I said, I don't, even though other books may verify the Bible, if they're not quoted in the Bible, I don't use them. But that's the reason why I use um, Jasher. That's the reason why I use the Book of Enoch, because the prophets and the disciples of the Bible quoted from those books, too. Therefore, I use those because, for me, they have the greatest uh, 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 verification. And it isn't just Jasher. I mean, think about the Book of Enoch. If somebody wants to read the first Book of Enoch, the seventh chapter of the book of Enoch, he describes how these watchers, these powerful angels, did the same thing that Jasher says, the same thing that the, that Genesis 6 says, uh, in that they used both the animals and humans. It says they sinned against the animals in the same way they sinned against the humans. And so, But the point that I make about all of this, um, Dr. Future and Tom Bionic, is that you have to ask yourself... If the only reason that these watchers were interested in women was because of their beauty, in other words, they were physically just lusting after them, then what was this blending with animals and humans all about? And I tell people, you have to admit, that uh, that even if 
the other ancient stories, the mythos of the Greeks, the Hebrews, I mean the Greeks and the, the Sumerians, um, and so on, even if those were nothing more than fiction or lore, there is, there is this metaphorical resemblance to um, parts of what are happening in modern biotechnology today that are astonishing, either both the sacred records and then just the mythological records, the corrupted records that were, that were written down by those who were plagiarizing, if you will, stories from the Hebrew text and turning, trying to turn them into their own records or whatever, stealing those ideas. But if you look at the whole record around the world, um, you have to think, you know, it's interesting that even, even our own modern news reporters today are using these terms like chimera. This is a term from Greek mythology. But they're using this to describe what we're doing now in modern science, biotechnology, transgenics, and, and the moral lesson is that the chimera was a hybrid beast. This was something that foreshadowed disaster. <laughs> so, so you have to see that, that the ancient world left us a record, and the Bible left us a record, in which they said that when these beings, these fallen angels, came down and started tinkering with God's creation, it led to disaster. It led to chaos, and that's the moral lesson for us now. And the lesson is there for people all around the world, whether there are believers or non-believers listening to this to this recording. The message is there from around the world that once, when this science happened once before, it led to destruction. And that's that's what I like to focus on now. That we need to be very careful uh, as believers because whether we're talking about the blending of living organisms, people, food animals we're crossing over the divine order we're crossing over a boundary for which god commanded us not to do he commanded every species to reproduce after its own kind and we're doing something now that god commanded not to occur so you have to you have to be very concerned uh that that we could unleash upon ourselves a pandora's box i mean we could literally unleash a molecular biological nightmare because God knows things we don't know, and whenever we begin to play God, that's where you wind up with a universal fiat like the Great Flood. Now, now, just in the earthly sense, we can open a Pandora's box in terms of the havoc we play with our genetic code. We can ruin it. It can spread everywhere without, without being the opportunity to fix it. But, but I think the point you're making is that when you look at Scripture, uh, based upon a historical record of this having occurred before, that it required judgment from God that came down uh, to stop this. And, and we would be crazy to think that the same thing would not happen again, that there would be spiritual judgment requirement. Now, you, you mentioned these sons of God, which I believe in Hebrew are called the Benai Elohim. Uh, right. so, some people will read that passage in Genesis 6 and try to bend it to, to make it as if these were other human beings that cohabitated. But but if you if you know your Hebrew and your rest of your scriptures, there's really no logical way to be able to do that, given that the Benai Elohim that are mentioned, I believe in Psalm 84, but in other locations, are clearly angelic, heavenly type beings, uh, uh, not just mere mortals by any stretch of the imagination. So if you read all of your totality of scripture when the, this term is used, it's clearly that this is something much more beyond mortal. Correct. That's right, and actually, the, the you know, the, I remember many decades ago being a young guy in, in uh, you know, Bible college, 
And uh, even then, the theory that the, that the B'nai Elohim were referring to the sons of Seth was a theory even then that was kind of losing favor with a lot of scholarship. And I would dare to say that today there's very few people that hold that to be true. And some of our best theologians, Michael Heiser and others, Michael Heiser can interpret seven extinct languages, uh, actually earned his Ph.D. studying this very subject, has, uh, ha has significantly concluded, and he's the academic uh, editor for Logos International, so he's, he definitely is a person who's qualified to speak to this issue. He still has uh, a hard time understanding my southern dialect, though. <laughs> <laughs> that also requires a Ph.D. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's actually pretty funny, Tom. <laughs> uh, well, it's the first time for everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, he's concluded that, that this is not a good interpretation whatsoever, and that right. the B'nai Elohim, it, 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 and actually is a word that can refer to the spirits of many things, uh, God, his son, angels, uh, humans, to, um, but, but that in, in the context of Genesis chapter 6, is definitely referring to the same beings that um, Enoch and Genesis 6 referred to, these watchers, these powerful angels, who wanted to leave their first estate. That's verified in the New Testament. They wanted to leave their plane of existence, and the method for them to do that was to create a body by using human and animal DNA that they could extend themselves into. Look, in, in Genesis 6, the Bible says, when men began to increase on the earth, daughters were born to them, that these sons of God, they noted their uh, beauty, and they took wives from among them. And when you take that scripture and you compare it to numerous ancient texts, including the Old Testament, uh, the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, Barak, the Genesis Apocryphon, which was part of the Qumran text, Philo, Josephus, Jasher, all these ancient books tell you what the Hebrews believed, and this was never contradicted by the ancient Hebrews, who were also inspired to write the Bible. The, the incredible tale emerges whereby you learn that the giants of the Old Testament, for instance, such as Goliath, that these were, these were part human, part demon, part animal offspring of angels who wanted to leave their plane of existence and came under judgment for doing it. Um, and let me let me just say too, for what you're you're going to explain this further for our listeners who may be shocked by this, but rather than what you're uh, explaining to us from Scripture, rather than it clouding the Bible narrative, what we'll actually do is clarify the Bible narrative, because uh, what it will clarify is is the the true discussion and focus, particularly through the Old Testament and beyond, of the battle between the seed of men and the seed of Satan and the techniques that Satan has used to try to stop the kinsman redeemer from being born and actually puts God in a much more loving light than than what some people think about him uh, regarding his judgments at the flood and in the land of Canaan. Well, most definitely one of the things that these, you know, the theory behind why these angels did what they did um, is usually narrowed down to one or two things, but, but always one of the interpretations behind what they did was they were trying to cut off the birth line of the Messiah. That the idea being that if these angels came down, intermarried with human females, created an offspring, that over a long period of time through intermarriage, that corrupted DNA would be spread throughout humanity and that eventually uh, there would come a point where nobody on earth would not have been corrupted by this blended, this corrupt DNA, this blended DNA, and that therefore no 
perfect son of God would be able to be born. It was a, it was literally an attempt to cut off the birth line of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the word for giant in the Old Testament is Nephilim, Nephilim. And uh, the root meaning there is the fallen ones, or those who from heaven to earth came. And it's significant because uh, when the Septuagint was, was made, um, Nephilim was translated as Geganus. And this, this still, you know, I, I can bounce these words back and forth because it goes so much to what we're doing today and what happened then. Geganus is a word that, it suggests giants, but, but it means uh, earth-born. And it's the same mm-hmm. term that was it was same same term that was used to describe the mythical titans. Uh, and what the meaning literally is here is something that's partly of celestial and partly of terrestrial origins. That's great scholarship. Most scholars would agree with that. Mm-hmm. So, according to these apocryphal books, these Nephilim filled the earth with violence, and they sought to corrupt and to destroy the Hebrew people. Uh, in, in order to cut off the birth line of the Messiah. Satan, Satan obviously knew the Proto-Evangelium, the promise in Genesis 3.16. Well, he was, he was there when it was stated, correct? That's, well, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And he knew that a Savior was going to be war, born, the seed of the woman, mm-hmm. and that he would destroy Satan's power. So, according to this theological interpretation, and, and now I've been doing this for almost 40 years, and, and I know that the majority of people who look at this particular interpretation believe this is either true or could be true, that Satan's followers, the, the, and they had, by the way, ancient, many ancient names in different uh, ancient cultures, the Anunnaki, uh, the Egyptians referred to them as the Chacha, they were absolutely horrified, terrified, them, scared to death. Uh, they were known by the Watchers uh, in Enoch, and by the way, uh, Daniel in the Old Testament also referred to them as the Watchers. These beings intermingled with antediluvian women, and this was a conspiracy, according to this theory, to stop the birth of the Messiah. And the idea was that if human DNA could be universally corrupted, then there would be no way for a spotless son of God to be born. And the truth is, that would have been true. I mean, if the bloodline leading up to the time of the Messiah would have included universally demonized DNA, then no Savior could have been born, and mankind would have been lost forever. And that's the reason why God commanded Israel not to intermarry with the heathen populations, so that there could be a pure bloodline. If you study the Old Testament, you see this over and over again, how important it is to maintain that bloodline leading to the Messiah. Uh, Tom, Uh, if I could take a crack at this as a neophyte, of what this immediately meant to me when I grasped this uh, was that we see it, we see a God who pronounces a judgment of flood that many people who aren't Christians say that a terrible, terrible God would kill all of these people because of a flood when in fact a careful reading of the Hebrew uh, about Noah suggests possibly that only his seed and his family was pure in their generations as far as being able to preserve that bloodline and that God, in his long-suffering and patience, waited up to the last moment uh, to wait for repentance of mankind until it was down to the last stage of being able to save uh, a bloodline for their own benefit and, and uh, their salvation. And so he, he actually lovingly, patiently waited for judgment, like we know is uh, illustrated clearly in, Bi- in the Bible. Uh, 
then after this particular time, as you said, uh, when, he, when he picks his own uh, nation, uh, his, his, uh, his own group through Abraham, he warns them not to intermarry with others. There are strong uh, pronouncements against things like bestiality and sexual deviancy that would, would possibly uh, be any kind of throwback back to these kind of experiments done at this particular time. And then when they go into the land of Canaan, which mm-hmm. we now know from the 12 spies and others is just crawling with these Nephilim, according to the 12 spies reports and the activities of Joshua, uh, God reluctantly has to uh, ask them to completely wipe out these other people after he waited time for for their uh, judgment as well. In fact, uh, the the uh, the people were kept in Egypt, his people, because the sins of the Amorites had not come to fullness at that time. And and when the judgment was ready to be pronounced on them, uh, that the children of Israel, particularly the men, were so prone to get these foreign wives that they had to completely be wiped out, so we didn't have another genetic corruption of the seed of Christ. I know that's a long-winded discussion, but am I on the right track there in yeah, looking at the elaboration a, in Scripture? That, that's, that's a wonderful and accurate uh, rendering of what many scholars believe to be a fact. I mean, the, you know, Methuselah, his name means when he is old or when he is dead or gone, it will come. And yet he lived to be the oldest man on earth. What a, what a, wonderful, what a wonderful depiction of the long-suffering and patience and mercy of God, that the man who lived to be longer than anybody else on earth was kind of set out there as a timepiece by God that said it's not going to happen until he's dead and gone and he lived older than anybody else. And so, and so then, you know, to stay on track, eventually there's this saturation. And God commands Noah to build this ark and to prepare for a flood that's going to destroy every living thing on earth. And, and as you said, I mean, the very fact that God had to send this universal fiat of judgment like the flood, it illustrates how widespread this altered DNA had uh, eventually become. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the Bible says that only Noah uh, was perfect, in his gen- and therefore, by the way, his, by extension, his children. Only Noah was found perfect in his generation. And the Hebrew word for perfect here is the same word that's used in Leviticus to describe an unblemished sacrificial lamb. Uh, the meaning, therefore, was not talking about moral perfection. In fact, we know that moral that Noah was not morally perfect. It's, it's telling us that Noah was physically untainted. In other words, his DNA had not been corrupted or altered by the by this Nephilim saturation, as apparently the rest of the world uh, by that time had been. But now, you know, you leap leap forward from that. And anybody that has read, uh, especially my last couple of books, the Aramon Gate or Nephilim Stargates, understands clearly that there now is a solid preponderance of Scripture and ancient texts to support the notion that what happened in Genesis 6 with the Watchers mingling their DNA with humans and animals in order to produce this body that they could incarnate or extend themselves uh, into our plane of existence, that this is something that is, uh, well, first of all, prophetically, I think it's indicated as it is going to happen again in the last days, but it's something that probably is happening right now. And so you have to evaluate what the, what the, almost the prophetic ramifications now of what we're doing uh, in, in biotechnology could portend. Well, Jesus himself said, as it were in the days of Noah, 
so shall it be when the Son of Man returns. And that gives you interesting food for thought. Now, many may say, well, that just means that people were caught unawares when judgment happened. But it's very curious that the example he immediately gives in Scripture is he says that people were marrying and giving in marriage, which is the same kind of activity that caused this judgment to begin with in Genesis chapter 6. Um, the, so, well, so, so I want to make sure I understand. You're saying there is an ancient record that suggests this occurred and that... Uh, the, the, and cause judgment. Even Jesus gives some indications to not be surprised to see these things happen again. And all of a sudden, in this in this last generation of ours, we're seeing these same kind of activities now being repeated by modern science. And people with an eye on prophetic scripture need to stand up and take notice on what might be the supernatural agenda behind all this as well. Well, I'm saying several things. First of all, I'm saying that that there is much reason to believe from prophecy, from the from the prophecies of Scripture, Old and New Testament. There is much reason to believe that what we're doing now could be indicative of the end times. Secondly, I'm saying that even if you're not a believer, you ought to be concerned right. about the unnatural alteration of living organisms, which neither creation nor evolution, if you have to believe that, uh, allowed for. And secondly, and thirdly, I'm saying that I think there were reasons why the Watchers did what they did, um, and and that it, and that that also is prophetic. Now, as far as scriptures, um, first of all, you know, you look at scriptures like Daniel 2:43, and it says, and and this is talking about you know the end of time and the and the, the last Roman Empire the revived Roman Empire, it says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. End quote. Hmm. Um, th- there's a personal pronoun there, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. And that's right out of the King James, right? It's right out of the King James, and... This is something that, when you read this scripture, you don't, you don't have to do anything fancy to try to change what it's saying. It, it will stagger your mind to contemplate and read it in any version, read it in the read it in the Hebrew, to contemplate the significance of this passage and its implication for the future of global governance, because it's talking about the, the end times revived Roman Empire. But 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 this strange verse, I mean, th- this verse in Daniel seems to indicate that. In this last revived Roman Empire, that the same phenomenon that was occurring in Genesis 6, where non-human species or non-seed was mingling with human seed and producing these giant or nephilim, that that, that, that maybe that kind of same phenomenon is going to be occurring again in the revived uh, Roman or New World Order. Mm-hmm. Another thing, uh, Wendy's non-seed, who mingle themselves with the seed of men, when that verse is coupled with Genesis chapter 3, an incredible tenet starts emerging. And that is that Satan has seed, and that it is at enmity with Christ. Genesis 3 says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The word, the word that's translated there is it is the Hebrew word zira, and it, it only means one thing. It means offspring, descendants, children, progeny. 
So, so then, with all these other verses combined, you know, you, you start thinking, is there a satanic, you know, is there a satanic posterity, a seed? Is there something lurking behind gateways waiting for some final opportunity to mingle itself with human DNA just like it did in the days of old? Uh, is that the method by which the Nephilim will return? Because there are scriptures that also talk about a return of the Nephilim, the giants, in the last days. Um, is, 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 is what we're doing today, is this a method by which Antichrist will become incarnated? Um, if, if Genesis 6 is truly an account of rebel angels leaving their assigned habitation and cohabiting with human females, out of which union these mutant life forms were born, then is it reasonable to assume that Satan as a fallen angel already has, or will be allowed to have, some ability to mingle his material with the DNA of a woman to produce uh, an offspring. And this is, this is something that you find in the scriptures, even with the prophecies of the Apostle Paul, talking about him being the, the son of perdition. And the, the Greek word there, perdition, is apoleai, the, the apollyon, the demon destroyer. That there literally could be some method by which we're going to ex uh, experience a return of the giants and also the, the coming of an Antichrist at a time when humanity is willing to start playing God, to take the place of God like the Watchers tried to do, to shake their fist in the face of God, to be Luciferian enough to say, I will be like God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. And they... And they literally tried to change creation, which brought about judgment, and yet here we are today doing the same thing. Hmm. So this would be some kind of uh, uh, blasphemous type of uh, fraud or photocopy of the virgin birth, uh, like Satan tries to do at all times, to try to replicate in his own twisted way what, what our Heavenly Father does. Well, you know, one of the things that interested me when I started doing this research um, uh, and, and and there again, you know, keep in mind that I started out studying, you know, what was going on with modern biotechnology, especially transgenics and biotechnology, and wanting to know what it might portend for the future, and couldn't find any records, but I kept running into this ancient record where this had occurred, the blending of humans and animals, and it had led to chaos, and I thought, is this... Did God allow this record to remain a universal record in the past as a warning that might portend the dangers of playing God in the future and crossing over these species barriers? So keeping that in mind, um, when I started reading then, all, all of the available records, keeping the Bible as my number one authority, uh, against which nothing else could conflict, and then reading all these other, uh, script, these other ancient books that were referred to, by the writers of the Old and New Testament. Um, I, I come to find out that, first of all, these beings wanted to leave their plane of existence. Okay. And in order to do that, they used women and animals uh, to create the pathway, the body, that they could extend themselves into. In fact, the Septuagint version um, of, the, of, the, of the, the book of Genesis 6 says, the B'nai Elohim saw the daughters of man, that they were fit extensions. So the, the whole essence here is that they wanted to leave their plane of existence, as is verified by Peter and Jude in the New Testament. 
They wanted to leave their plane of existence. They wanted to come into our reality. And I had to ask myself that if I was to remain true to the most um, uh, conservative interpretation of Christian scholarship, why would these angels have needed to blend animals and humans? That was my challenge. Why, why did they have to do that? And it goes to your question. And I, and I came to believe that these beings had to blend species in order to create a body into which they could extend themselves because every creature up until that time as it existed had its beginning in God. Uh, all life extended back to the Creator, who had spoken into existence by His own breath. The bara it's a wonderful study. It's just a glorious, wonderful study about God, who is the only one who has the ability to stand back and speak. bara And when, that, when He enunciates His voice, He can call forth raw, atomic, nuclear energy so that it comes forth into specified molecular forms, so that he speaks and he makes a, a human, he speaks and he makes a rock, he speaks and he makes a tree. Everything at the base level, being made of the same kind of electrons and neutrons spinning around, forming different molecular density, but he only can call forth and command that it be ordered in a particular way. And then once he makes these things, he, he touches the man and he breathes into his nostrils of his own life force, and man becomes a living soul fashioned after the image of God. So he sets all of these things in motion, and he gives every living thing the power from that point forward that's intelligent, um, or that, that matter, just living, living organism, everything to recreate after its own kind. And, and here's the important thing. This phrase, after its own kind, is, is extraordinarily important because it verifies, for intelligent beings, it verifies what kind of a spirit can enter into that being at the earliest spark of life. Each creature, after its own kind. So that when the sperm of a dog meets ovum of a dog, the life of a dog is formed at the first spark of life, the spirit of a dog, whatever that means. Not necessarily even that they have a soul, but the spirit of a dog enters that zygote, and that embryo grows and develops, and it becomes a dog in spirit and in form. The spirit of a man does not enter into it. The spirit of a horse does not enter into it. In the same way that a man is not born with the spirit of a horse or the spirit of a cow. And the point is, this was problematic to the Watchers, who, according to all these ancient records, had participated with God in creation. They knew something about creation, or at least they knew something about genetic manufacturing. And uh, they wanted to leave their plane of existence and enter this three-dimensional reality. They, they, Like I said earlier, they could have descended on Horeb in the days of Jared. They could have possessed a dog. They could have possessed a man. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to, they wanted to replace that innate spirit which God had created and set into procreative motion, dating back to him, and who also set barriers between these species and commanded that each kind would reproduce after its own kind. Now, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that for some time I had been an exorcist. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and there was one thing that I learned during that time that later on came back to me when I was doing this research. 
And that is that while we might be able to cast a demonic spirit, an alien spirit, out of a person, uh, the one thing we can never do is cast that person's innate spirit out of them. Hmm. In other words, you are you until the day that you die. Sure. Neither could the watchers replace the spirit of a man or a beast in that way. They could possess them, but they couldn't replace their spirit. They couldn't so supplant it. What's that? They couldn't totally supplant it. That's right. They could not expunge the spirit of any intelligent being with their own spirit. Um, so now, but but these beings knew something about creation, transgenics, the blending of DNA, one species from another, because they had participated in creation. And here was the great sin. They knew that the key to solving their problem, leaving their plane of existence and entering into our existence, that, that to do that, to incarnate themselves, not just possess, but become embodied on Earth, to leave their plane of existence, they were going to have to do several things that were all Luciferian. Number one, they were going to have to break the law of God by breaching the species barrier. Secondly, they were going to have to create a blended being, which would not allow the spirit of a man or a beast to enter it, because it would be neither man nor beast. And thirdly, they would have to leave their estate, and in a mockery of what God had done, breathe of themselves into this mutation, this Nephilim, and, and ultimately accept the judgment of God. And according to the ancient text, all of the ancient texts, this is what they did. And and these records tell us that it led to this unique being. Part human, part animal, part angel. Uh, this was a being that might have also then, and it would be interesting at some point to talk with you about transhumanism, because most people may not even be aware of this term, but I can, t I can assure you that the John Templeton Foundation... Uh, Case Law School in Cleveland, Stanford University, Oxford University, uh, Birkbeck Law School out of the United Kingdom, that there are intellectuals and people who are constitutional attorneys who right now are making the case for transhumanism. And this is, and, uh, unless the Lord intervenes, this is not something that's going to be stopped. Uh, these people are most definitely sincere about their interest in being a transhumanist and ultimately a posthuman using biotechnology as the next step in human evolution. Now, they expect yeah. those type of people to be intermixed amongst us, sort of a homo superior type of breed, within the next few years, correct? Well, within, within, within 10 years. I mean, really, the, the groundwork for it is being done right now. Look, we're already blending humans and animals. And if you, if you go to... Um, uh, Nick Bostrom is, has his prestigious seat at Oxford University was earned by his thesis on transhumanism. If you go to nickbostrom.com and read his thesis on transhumanism, uh, you can go to Dr. Uh, James Hughes, uh, Chain Surfer uh, uh, website. I can't remember the, the name of the website exactly. I've debated, actually, Dr. Hughes on his own syndicated radio show. Hmm. He's the executive director for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He's a bioethicist and a sociologist. He teaches at Trinity College in Hartford and uh, sits on boards at Yale University. These people are dead serious about what they're doing. And President Bush, 
When President Bush two years ago came out, <coughs> excuse me, and called for legislation that would um, that would outlaw federal funding for the creating of human animal chimeras here in the United States, this was about two years ago. Um, people may remember the reason that he did that was because his own Council on Bioethics, which at that time was headed by Leon Cass, um, they had researched all of the material and they had looked at, at, at what all of the um, uh, lawyers and constitutional attorneys were telling them, and they determined that this really is go this is not only going to occur, but Leon Cass and Francis Fukuyama and others came out of that and wrote books in which they said, we are now standing on the threshold of the most dangerous science in the history of mankind. And, and Leon Cass, who is a conservative and a Christian, was the chairman for that board, and he said, he told, he told uh, the president, and later in his own book, he said, uh, we're, we are right now uh, entering into a time in science where we are going to redefine what it means to be an animal, what it means to be a human, and then he said something scary. He said what it means to become a superhuman or what it even means to become a god. And he said those words, even though he's a conservative and a Christian, because he understands the ramifications of what we are doing now in, in the creation of a science that will allow for the modification of what it means to be humans. And, and I, you know, my research looked at this saying, okay, well, if... If humans begin blending themselves with animals, which they are poised, even National Geographic said that this is the last decade. National Geographic did a huge article on this in which they said in less than 10 years now, in less than one decade, mankind will no longer be the sole higher intelligent occupier of planet Earth. And they were talking about transhumanism. So we're talking about a science that's already out of the box. It is occurring. And it doesn't really matter if it occurs within five years or ten years or twenty years or two years or it, it doesn't really matter what the time frame is as much as it is to say that the genie is out of the bottle now mm -hmm. and we are doing this science and we are paving the way for it even the US military through DARPA has funded a great deal of research into human enhancement for super soldier technology and extended warfighter technology everything I'm saying can be verified by going to the by, by going to the sources, um, for instance, the John Templeton Foundation that I mentioned earlier, they've already provided a half million dollars to Arizona State University. Anybody can Google this. They're they're putting on right now a lecture series to evaluate the ramifications of embarking on what they have called lar the the next step in human evolution, large scale genetic and neurological reengineering of ourselves a new chapter in evolution as a result of accelerating in, uh, uh, developments in the fields of genomics, uh, stem cell research, genetic enhancement, uh, germline engineering, a bunch of other things they list. You could also go and look up Case Law School in Cleveland. They received almost a million dollars, $773,000, from the National Institute of Health, actually, uh, to develop guidelines to use uh, and, and, they, and, and here's what's interesting. They're, they're actually using real human subjects for this, for this study in what they're calling the next frontier in medical technology, and that's genetic enhancement. And uh, the professor of law over there and bioethics is a man by the name of Max Melhelm, and he's leading a whole team of law professors, physicians, bioethicists. This is a two-year project. 
and and their their commission for receiving seven hundred and seventy three thousand dollars from the National Institute of Health, their commission is to establish the guidelines. This is from the, this is from their press release. Establish the guidelines for altering the human species through genetic enhancement. In quote, that's their that's their objective. Yeah, they're not veiling that Whoa. at all, are they? You know, you've not even mentioned this whole other concept of uh, uh, cyborgs, where we have other groups that are trying to enhance our capability with electronics and other kind of means to create uh, a, a blurring between machine and man, where we can enhance our memory and our capabilities, uh, uh, our analysis capabilities, and where they even foresee one day where they can download all of our memory and other things and transplant them in another uh, type of cloned individual, which would be sort of a pseudo-immortality. So the, right. the sky's the limit on, on what they're trying to do. I want to ask you one other as we're, we're, we're coming here to the, the, the last uh, uh, quartile of our show here. And this is uh, not that we've not been strange enough already in this topic, but even stranger <laughs> topic. And, and this is one that I want to make sure my listeners understand. If this is too far out for you, uh, what we're talking about right now is not predicated on what I'm going to share right now. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. But if we take it just one more step. Uh, it's very uh, interesting that the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which actually had copies of the Book of Enoch and provided even further credibility that the ancients believed this general understanding, were found in 1947, which is a year which is well known uh, for the historic event of the Roswell uh, crash, which has captured the public's imagination ever since then and really birthed about the, the, the explosion and reported sightings of UFOs. And some of the data I have seen really blows my mind. I know there was a Gallup poll, a, a Christian pollster, the premier pollster, that actually reported that there were a few percent of people in the public who not only said that they have seen UFOs, but have actually had something like what we would say akin to an abduction uh, type of an event, which is just incredible. And that's why we hear so much about this. Wait, how news. many? I mean, it was it was something something ridiculous, like a like a two or three percent or something like really? that. Really, it was outrageous. Wow. Uh, Tom can, can clarify this for me. But regardless of of the numbers, that this is something that's a much bigger topic than what the mainstream media lets on, and that's why it's so popular when you watch the History Channel or Discovery Channel or whatever. But but regardless of how many people it is. If there's anything to the reported sightings of these thousands of people who say they've had reproductive experiments with something, and up to now many people have said, well, this, this is your classic UFOs from outer space. This sounds awfully like what you have talked about, what the ancients did, and I wonder if there could possibly be some connection between these genetic experiments and what people are reporting today. You know what's interesting, and, and I had not started out uh, to make any kind of connection between science and ancient history, but the connection came forth naturally. And I've often said to people, you know, um, if you were in a court of law and you had different um, eyewitnesses from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different ethnicities, different be religious beliefs, and all of them had witnessed an event, and each, but each one of them, in their own way, were kind of interpreting the event based on their own world of view, but essentially the facts of the event remained the same. If you had people from around the world telling you the same story, pretty soon you'd start saying, okay, there is, you know, setting aside their various ways of interpreting it within their own world view, there really was something that occurred. 
And so when I was doing this study uh, uh, using the scripture as my single authority, but noting how that in these other um, cultures around the world they were telling this same story, one thing that happened that I did not expect to happen took me over into the area of ufology. And, that, and here's how this happened, because I'm looking at, okay, these, these beings, these watchers, they came down. They wanted to harvest human DNA for the purposes of creating a body. Okay, that story was redundant over and over again. By biblical, um, um, other texts referred to by prophets and writers in the Bible, and then other, script, uh, and other uh, ancient records outside of that. But, but then something strange happened. I started running across some of the writers who were writing about what was going on in ufology and alien abduction uh, the, in a sense that it was demonic. And what, what struck me as interesting was that some of the best secular researchers, uh, people who did not describe themselves as being religious at all, kept making the case that what was going on in alien abduction seemed to be identical to what had gone on in biblical demonology and in ancient demonology. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, they noted how that in alien abduction there was this need to harvest, in fact, Jacques Vallée, who as far as I know mm -hmm. has no particular religious persuasion, he, he called it vital energy. And he talked about how in all of these abduction cases, whatever was going on, in his mind, smacked of being identical to biblical demonology, and that these beings were trying to harvest um, DNA, not just from humans. They wanted it from humans, like human eggs, ovum, whatever, scoop marks sometimes found in the bodies of those that had been abductees but also animals. You go to bed one night, you wake up the next day, and Skippy the horse is laying out in the middle of the field with parts of its DNA that have been removed with with laser-like surgical precision. So uh, when I saw that, I thought, it could just be a coincidence, but it was it was amazing to me that I was running into the same pattern again, like the collecting of human uh, DNA, what Valet called vital energy, matter associated with... with uh, uh, with humans, and also the collection of animal DNA for the purposes of what? Well, the interesting thing is, even the secular researchers say it appears for the purposes of creating a body into which they could extend themselves. Hmm. So it was it was startling. I mean, Dr. John Mack, uh, you know, in his attempt to clinically study so-called alien abduction, he he talked about how that uh, all these abductions had spoke to him about their sense that at least some of their experiences were not even occurring within the physical space-time dimensions of the universe as we comprehend it. They talked about these things coming through dimensions or a slit or a crack in some sort of barrier, some kind of a gateway, and how that they were entering the world from beyond the veil. Well, all this language that these secular researchers were using seemed to me to be identical to what we biblical scholars would refer to as uh, demonological, and and also that it that it seemed to be redundant to the story of what was happening with these ancient watchers. So, yeah, I mean, there there seems to be a record from the beginning of time that there is a phenomenology that occurs 
in which superintelligences have an interest where they can. And I do, by the way, we we'll do another show sometime where we talk about how people can protect themselves from this uh, ever occurring. Because what also seems to illustrate that this is demonic is that the Christians and people who can make certain um, efforts at protecting themselves through prayer and fasting seem to be able to affect this phenomenon so that it'll cease occurring. So that also tells me that high and above all of whatever these forces are, it's like the Apostle Pet, Apostle Paul said, for we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you might be able to withstand. So we have opportunity to uh, cloak ourselves in prayer and devotion to God and that this is something that can create a barrier between the intrusions of what uh, of whatever these forces are and of course whatever they are in in my conservative interpretation is we're talking about the activity of fallen uh, supernatural powers well uh, we just want to take a few more minutes on the subject and then um sort of wrap up a little bit with what some of your current activities are in your organization so in the in in 2 or 3 minutes could you summarize further Anything else my listeners could do, or what what Tom and I, what what uh, uh, our listeners that we have, who who uh, <laughs> listen to what we say, uh, actually go back and do their own homework, uh, find that much of it holds water. But now they're saying, now that I know this information, what else do I do? You mentioned spiritual protections for the family. Anything else that they should do, uh, as as Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, to address this, even from. Uh, a, a political issue, what's going on, or or just for their families, or within their church body, or elsewhere. Well, look, there's there there are three sources of spiritual power on earth that can influence individuals. Number one is divine influence. This is the power that proceeds uh, from God. Secondly, satanic influence, which comes from the sphere of Satan. Uh, and then third, there's human influence. And when you mention politics, this third influence is something that has to the power to influence people for good or evil as they submit themselves to either divine or satanic control. And there have been times in history when whole countries um, submitted to God's influence. And this had the ripple effect of cleansing their legislative halls or social policies of wrong, putting us back on track, in other words. And that would spoil the strategies of evil and make possible the healing of the nation. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Um, Now, conversely, there have been historic times when nations have turned their back on doing the right thing. And when they have, they've opened the door for what Psalm 78 referred to as evil angels to invade that society. And those were times when Satan's presence began to dominate the mindset of the majority, and systems of government and philosophy began to become influenced 
by destructive spirits, by the angel of the world in the whirlwind. We'll talk about that sometime. Now, you're now, not talking about dominionism, though, right? Because I, I know you're clearly against that. I'm actually saying exactly the opposite of right. dominionism. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. Well, I just want to make sure that's clear to people. Absolutely the opposite of dominionism. I'm, I'm, I'm like the, the champion of clobbering dominionism. <laughs> um, so, but my point being that if the church does what it is commissioned to do, and if they want to know what it's commissioned to do, look at the life of Christ and look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts. They didn't involve themselves in politics. They were preachers of the gospel. And, and this was the power that turned the world upside down. If you want to change a country, you change people in, the, at, at, in their heart. The, the preaching of the gospel is the dunamain, the dynamite, the power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, dunamain, the power of God. Um, and, and, and also, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that you have received of us, let him be anathema, maranatha. Let him be cursed at the coming of Christ. It's high time now for the church to return to the preaching of the gospel. If we want to uh, affect our country or any other country that might be listening to this message, become preachers of the gospel. Look at what Jesus did. When they tried to involve him in politics, he wasn't interested. He wouldn't, he wouldn't buy into it at all. He invested himself and his disciples. And the Bible, in fact, says that every time they did try to come to him to make him a king, he would move through the crowd. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He was not at all interested in becoming somebody's political pawn. Then you look at the New Testament uh, example that we find in the book of Acts. Paul, Peter, John, all of them became preachers of the gospel. They weren't interested whatsoever in joining, the, marrying themselves to some political effort. And yet, through preaching the gospel, they changed the hearts of people, continents-wide. The, the scripture says they, they became known as the people who turned the world upside down. So if we want to change our culture today, it's not going to happen through marrying ourselves to a political effort. And as a matter of fact... Joining ourselves to politics sets, set, it paves the way for the coming of the Antichrist. If you look in the books of Daniel, if you also look at the book of Revelation, I'm talking really fast and I know we're out of time, mm -hmm. you'll see the model there for the coming of Antichrist, and it is a political figure in the Antichrist and, the, and a religious figure in the false prophet. And this is a joining of church and state. This is a joining of the church and the political process. And so if people want to make a difference, if they want to impact their culture or their generation, we need people who are true, anointed, powerful, preachers of the gospel. These are people that can change the hearts of continents, and, and that's what will work. Look over the last decade, or look over the last 20 years, of, 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 of the religious movement's effort to join itself to political figures, to try to legislate morality, to try to uh, infiltrate the Supreme Court and overturn laws. I don't care. I mean, I'm not opposed to people who want to try to do that as much as I say to them, look at what it has resulted in. You haven't overturned any laws you were working to overturn. The church is dying. Even Barna, who is uh, a friend of the church, has has recorded over the last 10 years the declining numbers in the church. And the church and has gotten a reputation as being oppressors rather than liberators because of Oppressors oh, yeah. rather than liberators. And, and so what they're doing doesn't work. Well, the good news out of all of this is that there will be a lot of people who see, who will be able to see what I'm talking about, what we're talking about on this show, 
that, that the effort that they've made to try to change a culture, to try to change the world, to try to change a nation through overtaking courts and legislative authorities and whatever doesn't work. And the, and the good news about that will be that then they'll turn their eyes back to what Jesus taught and what the, the uh, disciples taught and the model of the church as it was illustrated in, in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And they'll be able to say that the way they try, they'll be able to see that the way they triumphed was a couple of very simple things. One, they were very communal, meaning that not necessarily that everybody lived together, but that everybody took care of their own. They took care of their own. If a brother or a sister had a need, they worked to take care of that need. Secondly, that they preached the gospel. These are the two very simple lessons that you find the model of the book of Acts. And the good news about what's happening with the church now, with the church losing numbers day by day and dying, and paganism exploding, growing like crazy, religions that didn't even exist for the last thousand years suddenly having gigantic um, growth spurts, teenagers all over the world turning to Wicca and all these different things. If people want to affect their generation, preach the gospel. You don't even need to understand why that's true. Be preachers of the gospel. This is the power. This is what God will anoint. This is what God will work through to reach a generation of people. And if we can get back to that point for future and Tom Bionic, then we can change this generation for God. Well, well, amen. Amen. Yeah. Hey, would would you not also agree that our discussion we've had today, while it's been out on the frontiers of our understanding of some strange topics, are are an extension of preaching the gospel and the fact that we're showing people in the public that we have answers for some of these mysteries that face us today and challenges, and that the Bible has answers in that narrative, and that that uh, what the kind of topics we're talking about here are the things that need to be part of our narrative and sharing our gospel and our testimony? Well, absolutely anything that relates to scriptural history. We have the lesson of what happened in Genesis and how it led to the Great Flood. So anything we're repeating today uh, would be something that we ought to be dialoguing, uh, especially if it means that we begin playing God and we're crossing over certain barriers um, which God commanded us not to do, we certainly need to be. The church ought to actually be on the forefront. Um, the Catholic Church is dialoguing this some, but I'm an evangelical, and I'm seeing very little conversation from the evangelical communities. But I think part of that might be not because they're not willing to discuss it as much as it's a it's a very quickly moving, uh, emerging field of science, and they're just not really, um, they don't really understand yet what is occurring why it's biblical, why it could be uh, even prophetic. And uh, and I'll tell you something. We're going to have to talk about this at some point because the, the, the prophecies, Isaiah refers in several cases. He even prayed that God would not allow the giants to come back from the grave. And, uh, and, in, and in Isaiah 13, he even talks about, in 19, he even talks about how gateways are going to open and these giants are going to return uh, as instruments of destruction on the earth in the last days. So, so uh, what once was done is now being repeated, and I think it's very prophetic, and therefore the church ought to be dialoguing and discussing it right now. And be ready uh, with answers. I remember, yeah. I remember when um, Digital Angel first came out, 
and they were talking about microchip implanting and all that. And Raiders News Network was the first one that wrote a huge editorial, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it went like wildfire across the Internet. And MSNBC and all, all these different places were quoting what we had written. So much, it, it had reached so many people, uh, people that, um, that they actually had to respond to it, and they wrote an editorial about, they referred to us as certain conservative Christians. <laughs> Have a concern about this. Yeah. But, 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 we, but we, we kept putting this forward into the news, and now you look at Digital Angel. I mean, they want to sell their whole microchipping part of that process. So believers can make a difference. We can, through speaking up and talking about these issues, we can impact on a very broad level what's happening within our culture uh, today. We, we've got about three minutes left, and I wanted to give you some more time to talk about your ministries because they're so critical for our listeners to have a more complete uh, education, but we're going to have to do this relatively quickly. Can you tell us a little quickly about uh, Raiders News Network and about your, your book publishing and some of your own books, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the specifics on, an, on another day, but get, give us uh, some quick information on how they can keep up to date with these topics. All right. Well, if they want to visit the Raiders News Network, it's just like, it's spelled just like the football team, R-A-I-D-E-R-S. News Network, RaidersNewsNetwork.com. Uh, you can also get their RaidersNewsUpdate.com. How many people yeah. come to that site regularly? Uh, boy, I haven't checked in a long time, but it's in the many millions of people. Um, Amazing. And, wow. um, uh, we're very happy about that. We also have our uh, Christian publishing house. Um, we're a, probably a medium-sized publishing house. We'll publish probably 50 authors. This year, we've got some extraordinary uh, authors that are coming out very soon. Um, Dr. Bill Salas has written a book. The name of the book is Israelistine, and he's talking about what's happening in Israel right now, and it's it's getting huge uh, exposure and commentary from some of the biggest names in the nation right now who think that he's really keyed in on what's happening in the Middle East and how that's going to unfold prophetically. Um, David Flynn has written a book called Temple at the Center of Time. This is a book you have got to get. It includes charts, maps, measurements, and it shows how the original temple in Jerusalem is related to every important historical event that is connected to Israel down through time in exact measurements. He does this using military satellites. I'm, I'm telling you, this book is something like you've never seen before, and at the end of this book you will be convinced that God put the original temple in Jerusalem exactly where it sets to be a time clock um, for all of the prophetic events, including future pro uh, prophetic events. When, when are you going to get him on our show? That's what I want to Well, know. we can get him on your show pretty soon. The book's out July 1. I'm hoping to have copies of the book. I'll send you a review copy of the book in about three weeks. Please do so. Uh, it, 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 this is one of the most, I mean, by the time, and with these charts, by the time you get to the end of this book, nobody... Uh, would be able to deny the facts um, about the location of the temple in Jerusalem and what it means for the future and what it has meant down through time. But so we're we're very happy. I mean, we really feel that um, you know we've got we've been given this opportunity by God. You start. You said earlier in this show that we're the hub, but the truth is, um, Doctor Future and Tom Bionic. I really believe in my soul that God has brought together a group of people uh, for these last days, and he's bringing all of us together at one time, and that in a unified voice, 
we're going to be able to be used by him to provide what many people are going to be looking for and what people need to be able to keep their feet on solid ground as we enter into an extraordinary uh, moment in history. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. Um, we will try to uh, make our listeners aware of all the other dimensions of the books you offer and other things over time. Of course, a lot of your authors will hopefully make their way through our show in the uh, weeks and months ahead. But I just want to thank you for your contribution and leadership in our field. And I know when your radio show comes out, things are never going to be the same again. Well, I'm just happy to be back on your show again. I always love being uh, on radio with you guys and, and uh, happy to do it any time we can. Anytime you can cram in a few moments in your busy schedule, we'd love to have you back. Yeah. We know you need to go. Uh, thank you so much, Brother Tom. We appreciate your time with us. And please drop back in as soon as you can to keep us updated. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And this is the time when every week we do tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the mm-hmm. future's news. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? We've got some good stories to jump into. I'm I'm excited. I'd actually like to see what you have going Thank on. You. I'm looking over at your your pile there. Well, you are consistent with the emblem and the thumbum that you know that we got. It said actually it was my turn this week. By the way, I, I uh, we're going to read a story here that's uh, done by Pastor Chuck Baldwin, who is uh, also a not only a pastor of one of the most influential churches in America. But he is the presidential candidate of the uh, Constitution Party, which is the third largest um, presidential party in America. Did you know that? The third largest. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, right after Democrats you know, and Republicans. I actually, I actually did know that, but uh, I didn't know how they. But you played it. along well, good on that. That you didn't know. Thank you. We could do like one of those um, uh, witnessing um, videos. Me and me and. Um, what must I do to be safe? <laughs> Great. Uh, no, seriously. Um, he is the. Uh, he was recently elected, and we covered this on our prior Future Quake show. Uh, he was nominated over Alan Keyes, uh, three to one, as the presidential candidate, and should be uh, on, on the ballot box in either every state or just about every state. Um, but this gentleman is a pastor of a independent Baptist church, very very strong on biblical fundamentals, on biblical inerrancy and on uh, beliefs that uh, are biblically based. Mm -hmm. And I just want to mention back to last week's news that we had to hurry up and finish, where evangelicals at the Southern Baptist Convention and and elsewhere uh, are saying that, that, well, we only have two choices. We've got to pick the lesser evil. This this guy hates us and despises us, but we'll just have to go on him because, because we might get gay marriage with the other one. And I would I would like to mention to a lot of you, and, and some of you may just be innocently unaware, although as citizens, even though you're Christians, you still have an obligation to be informed. And uh, I have fingers pointing back to me as well, too, on this. We, Including uh, Tom and I have the obligation yes. to be informed. But That's uh, kind of th- why we started the show. Right. Almost. But this is an alternative that is out there. You have someone who believes what evangelicals believe. Uh, and has an available belief system, and he has a, uh, uh, a, I guess, a provocative story right now that's going to be... Uh, yeah, and I would like to point out that we have, uh, I believe we have his acceptance speech up at Future Quake, don't we? Uh, well, we actually have a, a show about the results of the Constitution Party, yes. 
And I want to make clear to everybody, we're not here to try to promote a party. We're not affiliated with them. We don't have any uh, association connection directly. Uh, they make for an interesting guest. Yes. Um, but uh, we just try to provort, uh, report information that you may not be aware of. And I'm, I'm guessing most of you in the audience, this is probably news to you, that you have someone who's an evangelical that supports what I understand you to believe that is available in the ballot box for you to pull a ballot button for. Mm-hmm. That uh, actually believes in um, uh, staunchly pro-life and seriously, not just playing games with you, but really pro-life. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who uh, uh, believes other scriptural values about using honest money and being being honest in an economic system that's not exploiting of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of strong defense, but yet done with Christian values as well too. And, and a whole host of uh, beliefs, uh, for example, uh, the Constitution Party, if you're not aware of it, is strong for homeschoolers. They believe hmm. in homeschoolers and parental rights. Uh, they believe that the, the government should stay out of our exercise of religion. Mm-hmm. If these are important issues for you as evangelicals, maybe you ought to go to ConstitutionParty.com. Again, we're not affiliated with them, but uh, just in terms of education, you may hear on Christian radio a lot about the Republican Party or Democratic Party. So to round out your education, there's some information to you. Yeah. Uh, might want to also mention too. Last week, and talking about uh, McCain, uh, there was a there's been some suggestion that people would support him because of the selection of judges, and that judges related to pro-life and other family issues um, would be important to have a Republican in. And I would just like to remind our listeners that uh, that uh, McCain, Senator McCain, has been part of a Democrat Republican gang of 14 which mm-hmm. was sort of a mafia that took over Congress and, and stymied the Republican Party numerous times when they were trying to get key legislation through and also I remember that. Um, at, I remember that. T- trying to uh, get away from uh, judges that are too conservative, they believe, or ones that uh, d- did not have a more liberal bent. They were supporting a more liberal bent, and that's your presidential nominee for the Republicans, John McCain. Uh, so you might want to just keep that in mind. You don't hear too much about that on the news these days. Pretty anyway, much just here. Right. On to Chuck Baldwin. Um, this, this is his comments. Open borders prove, quote, war on terror is superficial. Uh, this is from uh, independent Baptist pastor and presidential nominee, uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin. The American people were led to believe that America's fine men and women in uniform were sent halfway around the world to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight a war on terror. Of course, everyone uh, now knows that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with the attacks on September 11, 2001. I'm sure that most everyone also remembers that the vast majority of the terrorists who participated in those attacks were from Saudi Arabia, not Iraq. Yet, Saudi leaders continue to enjoy the coziest of relationships, and dare I say friendships, with President George W. Bush. Does anyone besides me remember when Bush said that countries had to decide whether they would be either friends with terrorists uh, or the United States, but they could not be friends with both? Well, Saudi Arabia has probably financed, supported, and befriended more terrorists in the Middle East than any other nation in the world, except perhaps Red China. Yet they continue to be, quote, friends with the United States. Another glaring inconsistency regarding the war on terror is the fact that for some seven years since the 911 attacks, our nation's borders and ports are as open and porous as ever. These open borders make the argument that we are, quote, fighting them over there so we won't have to fight them over here, unquote, look absolutely disingenuous, even laughable. 
Now, Tom, I'll just say this was the big issue that was the clincher for me when I started challenging everything I had believed as an evangelical Mm -hmm. over the last two years is that everything that I had been sold about what's going on with the war on terror and the aftermath of things going on, I cannot make any sense of the fact that we're going around the world and door to door in other lands looking for these, quote, terrorists. When we have a border that everyone knows, it's no secret, is absolutely porous. We, 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 we're told all sorts of threats from Department of Homeland Security about mm-hmm. our water supplies being suspect, energy sources, all our food supply. We better put guards and put cameras everywhere watching it. But yet we've got a wide open border with people coming over that we don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. How, how can one say that our government is so consumed with protecting us with that glaring omission? Well, that's a very interesting point there, Dr. Future. Uh, I've seen in the news recently that what tends to be happening is now there's a discernible effort going on in different states and even, you know, even nationally that uh, what's going on is that normal citizens are being sort of targeted uh, for searches and stuff with the idea that now they're going to, uh, if, if they search enough people, they might come up with a terrorist. Oh, is that right? So yes. justify in reverse. Yes. In. Yes. Well, you know, there was that there was that uh, that thing that happened just over in Memphis in Shelby County where they searched a lot of people. They were even climbing on boats in the Mississippi and using uh, uh, money earmarked for anti-terrorist activities. Was that also the, the place they were taking just regular citizens out of the cars and doing DNA swabs in uh, their mouths? Was it there? I believe that was the very if same I'm, place in operation. Yes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you we as evangelicals better wake up. And I have had to repent of my ways, and uh, I am trying to learn. I'm not saying I understand what's going on, but uh, maybe all of us together can start figuring out what is going on. But I'd like to get back to what uh, Pastor Baldwin uh, has to say here. Tell it, brother. If foreign terrorists want to bring the fight to America's streets again, they still have plenty of opportunity to do so. In fact, we have no idea how many potential terrorists have already slept across our borders and are right now living among us. Furthermore, we have no idea how many potential terrorists continue to pour through these wide-open sieves that we call borders. How can this administration look the American people in the eye with a straight face and claim that it is fighting a war on terror while it does almost nothing to secure our borders and ports? As Marcella said in in, uh, Act 1 of Hamlet, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Amen. Something's also rotten in Washington, D.C. Besides, why should al-Qaeda attack us now? The U.S. occupation of Iraq is the best recruiting tool they ever had. Do the American people not realize, and I think most of them actually do, that thanks to our protracted occupation of Iraq, al-Qaeda might actually be stronger now than when we invaded that country in 2003? If the Bush administration was serious about fighting war on terror, it would absolutely, resolutely, and immediately seal our borders and ports. There's nothing short of lunacy to send our National Guard forces to Iraq for the purpose of protecting that country's borders while leaving America's borders wide open. In fact, we have almost no soldiers left here to do it. Yeah, I know. Well, and it's interesting that all of a sudden this talk about that was happening six months ago that we're going to need more fighters and more fighters and more fighters and the Army's severely overstretched. Uh, it suddenly is not going on. Right. And that makes me nervous because... That seems to indicate that the problem has magically been taken care of, <laughs> or B, they're taken. They've decided on another course of action. Right. Exactly. Um, 
not only does Bush, uh, did the Bush administration not secure our borders and ports, it wants to provide a path to citizenship for illegal aliens. It allows tax dollars to be used for pay, paying illegal aliens education, social services, and medical care. It offers birthright citizenship for illegal aliens. And it prosecutes and imprisons border control agents, uh, Ramos and Campion, for shooting, but not serious enough to prevent his escape back into Mexico, a known illegal alien and drug trafficker, and one who's been, my, my additional comment, a repeated tr- drug trafficker since then. And our government used a criminal, illegal alien, criminal drug, repeated drug trafficker to put our own law enforcement officials in a jail where they're routinely beaten up right now. Uh, and not only that, they're there for 20, 25 years. They got, I think they both got maximum sentences, if I recall correctly. And and I think they shot shot him in his seat, basically, in his rump. And oh. that, that was that was the uh, the crime that they did. Hmm. Uh, no wonder the flood of legal aliens has skyrocketed since George Bush became president. Um, does any is there anyone who does not understand that a John McCain presidency will be more of the McSame? A McCain White House promises a 100-year occupation of Iraq, along with the continued open borders and ports. Plus, McCain will also push hard with his plans to grant amnesty to illegal aliens. That is his current plan. In addition, when it comes to illegal immigration, amnesty, etc., there will be no relief from an Obama White House. Both Barack Obama and John McCain are pro-open borders, pro-amnesty twins. Instead of fighting a war on terror, the Bush administration, and numerous ones before it, uh, are allowing troops, uh, have allowed our troops to be used as the personal militia of the United Nations and for the commercial benefit of international corporations. How does that sit with you all out there listening? Uh, remember, soon after our troops invaded Iraq, President Bush explicitly reported that the reason for the invasion was to defend the credibility of the United Nations. But this has been the pattern of White House behavior ever since the UN was created in 1945. This is a long-term problem. Hmm. Presidents from both parties have repeatedly injected U.S. troops into copious conflicts and wars for the purpose of enforcing and augmenting the policies of the United Nations. In fact, the last constitutional conflict the U.S. militarily fought was World War II. Virtually every war since then has been a U.N. manufactured and manipulated conflict, and Iraq is no different. Okay, I'm getting up here to the end. I asked the reader if you were president and you sincerely believed that you were fighting a war on terror and that you had to take the drastic action of sending other men's sons and daughters to fight and die in order to wage this war, not to mention the prospect of potentially bankrupting the country to fight it, would you be so careless or indifferent as to not close the borders to the threat of terrorists? You might actually decide to attack us. I doubt there is a reader, uh, or listener in our case, who would not agree that anyone who took such a task seriously would, at the very minimum, do this. So I repeat... The fact that George W. Bush refuses to seal our borders and ports proves that whatever else he thinks he's accomplishing in Iraq, he is disingenuous when he proclaims that he is fighting a war on terror. Uh, and again, um, nothing done about uh, Saudi Arabia, even though they're the ones who provided us the, the terrorist. Uh, if fighting terrorists was a focus, why did Bush not attack Saudi Arabia? And that means John McCain is disingenuous when he says he wants U.S. troops to stay in Iraq for 100 years so we won't have to fight the terrorists over here, while at the same time promoting amnesty for illegal aliens. Uh, No, my friends, real war is not a war on terror. The real war is a war against constitutional government, personal liberty, and national sovereignty. It is a war against the constitutional principles of America's founding fathers, that America should be a friend and traitor with all, 
but engaged in entangling alliances with none. It is a war against the Bill of Rights. It is a war against the spirit of 76, the spirit that says America is a free and independent country, subservient to no international entity or interest. It's a war against the principle that put, um, uh, would put America first. It is a war against the very heart and soul of everything this country has ever stood for since our patriotic forebears stood on Lexington Green and Concord Bridge. And this war is not being waged from Baghdad or Tehran. It's being waged from Washington, D.C. So wow. that's from Pastor Chuck Baldwin. Very strong. If you want to find out more about what he believes, go to constitutionparty.com. Uh, we're supposed to have him on for a very, very brief visit. He's a very busy man oh, really? uh, campaigning. He's going to be hopefully coming up here in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. We had him on schedule earlier, and we had a conflict. So um, they're rescheduling that right now. Cool. Uh, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I know some of this is sort of a bitter pill to swallow, and believe me, it has been for me. I can't speak for Tom, but for me, uh, I've been a full flag-waving, uh, let's go to war, let's kill those people, let's... Get everything secured, and it's been a painful process for me for the last two years of listening to some very, very wise Christian Bible-believing brothers who uh, saw the lights coming on in their own head, most of them very very sooner before me, and uh, suddenly I started seeing things through a different set of eyes. So, um, But you may not believe that, and Tom and I would love an email from you yeah. at drfuture at futurequake.com, and let us know what you think about it. You know, we're getting just a few seconds for our show to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to let Merv let people know how to give us some feedback uh, on what you hear. So, Merv, uh, tell the folks how to find uh, our website and how they can give us some feedback via email. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, thank you, Murph. We've got 20 seconds left. Any... uh well, we might stretch it to 30 or 40 well, if we're lucky. Any summary? Your your article there uh, from Chuck Baldwin was very informative, and uh, I think we uh, we covered what we needed to cover today very nicely, actually. Okay, great. So, so Pat's on the back for you and for me. That's right. That's right. Although we just always wish we would get, get through more material, but mm-hmm. we, our ingenious commentary always fills the space. We speak so slow. Okay, speak slow. We gotta we gotta speak fast now. We gotta go, ladies right. and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you back next week for another wonderful guest and another future quick show. Until then, hope your future is very bright. Goodbye. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 quake.